0: There's a whole world of comics out there. Literally, once you start expanding your horizons past comics produced in the US or the UK, you start to truly experience the breadth and depth of content that's out there. The difficulty comes when books published in different countries are written in languages that you can't read, and you're relying on the translated versions to be released. The Western audience for manga is growing every day, but the sheer volume published in Japan is so great that Western translations just can't keep up. This can often lead to frustrations and poor fan translations that just don't cut it and that's just content from one country. Of course there are things that transcend language. Comics are a visual medium after all and European classics like Tintin and Asterix contain such universal themes of adventure and slapstick comedy that they can work even if you can't read them. But it's not always other languages that provide a barrier to readers books that tackle tricky subjects such as love, relationships and sexuality can be hard to handle honestly, even in 2019. And those creators that do decide to take them on have to make sure that they handle such sex-positive concepts with the right balance of humour and heart so that the ideas they're trying to get across don't get lost in translation. My name's Matt Loon. And today on the show, I'm joined by Meredith McLaren and Steve Lacey to discuss their love of comics from far and wide. This is That's The Issue. Uh,
1: My name's Meredith. I draw comics for a whole range of ages uh the most recent being a more adult book and i uh, foster kittens on the side
2: hi i'm steve Lacey. i'm a uh, podcaster basically uh, there's not much else to me than that but yeah, a, a <laughs> podcaster uh, known for deep dives into the world of marvel comics brilliant
0: welcome to the show both thank you so much for joining me it is, uh, it is great to speak to you uh, thank um, you for having us <laughs> Well, Meredith, I will start with what you just talked about, fostering kittens, um, yeah. which is absolutely adorable. I've just seen on your Twitter that um, your last one, is it Baby Tommy? Yep,
1: Baby Tommy.
0: Uh, is he just, has he just gone off to his forever home, has he now?
1: Uh, he's gone off to go up for adoption for his forever. Right.
0: Oh, that must be so hard for you.
1: it's it's hard for me i think it's actually i live with my dad and i think it's a little harder for him
0: oh no (laughs) yeah Yeah. is he is he a typical like dad like as he doesn't want kittens doesn't want anything to do with animals but then as soon as he's got one he loves them like his own child
1: um he he loves dogs so he's not completely off of animals but he is that way with cats the way you described where it's yeah don't want them in the house you know I guess I'll tolerate them and then he the cats usually very slowly win, win him over and he's always <laughs> he, it's he's always trying to like curry their favor right yeah.
0: he's trying to be the favorite yeah <laughs> what's he do like feed them little tidbits from the kitchen
1: no he just tries to pay more attention to them and everything yeah yeah
0: That's my favorite kind of like video or or picture on the Internet where it's like the reluctant person that just said they never wanted an animal. And then there's just a photo of them cradling them like a child or kind of both watching TV together or like curled up on the couch together. That's such a great kind of moment.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the the cat that we actually currently own, uh, she's an adult cat and she adopted us. She Mm. came to our yard, our backyard, and she never left. And then she kept trying to sneak into the house. And my dad had, you know, he laid down ground rules. She couldn't come in the house. And then the ground rules shifted. She could only come into my room. And then it's <laughs> she can have the whole house except for my for my father's room. And now mm. she has the complete run of the place.
0: Yeah. And is a father your father's room her favorite place in the house
1: not quite no her favorite
0: her favorite room seems to be mine which well oh that's lovely we've um we've just well we've adopted a little kitten as well she was um we went on holiday to greece and ended up coming home with a souvenir not not literally because she had to go through like quarantine and spend about a month like kind of in quarantine and in transport but um she's been living with us for about two months now and she's just this like little bundle of energy and tiny knives and she just gets into and onto everything
1: i I had to promise my my father i would take a break from fostering kittens because my legs need to recover (laughs) they're so badly scratched up i get commented comments about it all the time i have to wear pants during the middle of the summer so
0: (laughs) just to protect yourself (laughs) oh no and uh, and steve you're living in belgium now you were saying
2: yeah, I'm. A, I'm a, now one of those uh, dirty British expats leeching off the uh, social security systems of other countries, <laughs> um, or, or at least that's how uh, the media views me. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's that's how you're portrayed. But um, but yes. how are you getting on over there now? I, it's been about eighteen months. I mean, I found a comic shop. That's really the main thing. Perfect. Um, yeah, I, I can inject my my cultural heroin. Yeah. <laughs> do you find? it's
0: fine yes yeah exactly that's the that's the one thing it's like when you when you unpack in a new home it's like get the television and get the chair set up and you're all good and now in this case it's move to a new country find a comic shop and you're completely fine
2: I I mean I'm not saying my choice of where to live was influenced by who had the comic shop but here I am
0: (laughs) And, um, so you are um one of the hosts of the Fantastic Ass, which is mm-hmm. um fantastic Four podcast that you are started you started in was it january twenty
2: twelve yeah, we so launched that... in january twenty twelve and uh it's taken like eight years, seven years for me to realize we're a deep dive podcast, and someone else had to tell me that. <laughs> I I to tell mean, the show we, yeah we 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 basically we deep dive into fantastic four history we we're one of those shows that starts at the beginning and goes bit by bit, but very slowly
0: yeah i mean you you absolutely yeah i think you're the textbook definition of deep dive it's the deepest dive you can possibly do because you're you're taking each episode is one issue, and mm-hmm. it's not just an issue of fantastic four it's an issue any issue that they've appeared in. So any kind of um, crossovers like Marvel Two in One or Marvel Team Up or uh, anything like that, and crossovers and events and things
2: like that. Yeah. So, how many
1: so, decades of, of work does that lend you? Uh,
2: well, we we've just broken into nineteen eighty, so okay. we we've <laughs> entered our third decade after about seven years of podcasting. So um, yeah, we 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 literally we we go we we want to kind of treat it almost like the readers were at the time, except on a slightly more accelerated schedule. So, you know, we've got our Fantastic Four, but what else might they have been popping up in Marvel time at at about the same time? So, uh, especially in the 60s, when there was that really limited pool of Marvel comics uh, uh, and the Marvel universe is growing and figuring out what it is and Stanley's working out how to create this shared universe and have everyone pop up in each other's titles was really fascinating. And we're in, yeah, we uh we're in 1980, so we're doing the serpent crown saga from Marvel 2 in one. We're dealing with the Munch Sinkevich run of Fantastic Four. Um, it was our choice. <laughs> it's not <laughs> no one is calling it the, the top of uh, Fantastic Four stuff, but it felt really important to us that we didn't just cherry-pick the good stuff, we didn't leap from Lee Kirby to Byrne. To uh, Wade Waringo, for instance, that that we looked at the interstitial stuff that doesn't have such a good rep and try and take it on its own terms, even if its own terms are this isn't a particularly great comic.
0: Mm. I mean, how does that affect your view of the series? Like, because as you say, you're you're kind of reading them as they were produced, so you're you're re- you're, you're reviewing them and, and covering them in uh, in publishing order as well. So you're not necessarily covering them in the way that like they are kind of for for as continuity as as good as continuity gets with superheroes like you're not kind of reading them in continuity order you're reading them as they were as the readers were reading them at the time as that sure. kind of as that improved your your experience of them as that kind of as it made you appreciate them better or has it made it changed your view of them at
2: all i think one of the things it's done because i i read on the schedule of the show i can't do a binge read I can't just go, oh, right, I'll just grab this essential or this epic collection and read through it all because it, it covers, you might cover several months of recording. So actually taking it issue by issue properly has been really interesting. I, I've done binge reads a couple of times because I had the, the DVD sets of the Fantastic mm-hmm. Four. So you just sit there going from PDF to PDF um, all the way through. So it's nice to actually kind of take it as an individual unit rather than an ongoing story or just, I could do 10 issues tonight. I got nothing else on. I'll do it. Mm. Uh, That's been the really interesting thing. Uh, That's where I get excited about reading, for instance, the Tom DeFalco stuff, which is basically a six year serialized story. Uh, And if you try and read that, you do tend to kind of take a deep breath and just go for it. So to take that, you know, one issue every couple of weeks, I'm looking forward to getting to that in about 2024.
0: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah it, it, I mean it is an insane project to to have started on I mean what made you did you did you realize the enormity of it before you started?
2: I think if i didn't know when I was planning this that uh, how much of my time it would take up in the focus, I might have had a second thought about it, but um I came into podcasting through similar index style shows um from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which took the John podcast. Man of Steel comics onwards through the never-ending battle era. That was kind of my en- entrance into podcasting. I was thinking, oh, I'd like to do something like this. Mm-hmm. What could I do? And the, the only thing I really knew is that I wanted to record with my co-host, Andrew Leyland. And I knew he was a big Fantastic Four fan, that the Fantastic Four being a big part of his comics reading. And I've always been fascinated by the concept of the idea that it launched with some of the most notable creative endeavors of the 1960s. And then nobody really knows what to do with it for a while. And every now and again, you have this, these huge creative peaks and then everyone goes, uh, sure, remix Lee Kirby again. <laughs> um, I, I'm just quite glad I sold him on the idea of doing strange Tales before he picked up any of them because he was committed before he realized what he was doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you kind of hoodwinked him slightly,
2: just just a little. <laughs> but it, it's great fun, especially now that I'm in a different country from him to have that kind of regularity of sitting down, having a chat, uh, recording some of it, putting it out. It, it's really nice to do. Yeah, and it keeps you in contact with
0: him mm-hmm. as well. Like you know, just to be able to kind of have that regular like regular contact with him as well, yeah. which is good. And um, have you? Do you are you an avid reader of Superior Comics, Meredith? Is this um have you read much of the old Fantastic Four?
1: I haven't read much of the old Fantastic Four. Um, I was a big X Men and Avengers, and mm-hmm. Ultimates started I like when I was in high school, so I was into that for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. A lot of people started with like Ultimates and like Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X Men, because they were a great kind of jumping on point for a lot of people they were like a kind of a gateway drug to to the mainstream marvel
1: i think they got a little darker than i was expecting A little <laughs> darker than i was expecting and so i was like oh okay
0: yeah they are um they're a symptom of their time um going back and reading those first ultimates comics um they are very 2002 2003 they're very kind of very post nine eleven like landscape with them, which and which does, as you say, like get very dark very quickly.
1: Yeah, um, I think also it was the the beginning of comics should be gritty, mm. sort of uh, for the the new wave of it for yeah. the my generation. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose that for you, Steve, is quite interesting because you you. St- you're not just as you say if you were cherry picking issues from random eras they would kind of be like isolated but what you do at the start of every episode which i love is you is you run down the history of what's going on in in marvel comics at that point in time in history
2: it's a bit of a Bit of a Sisyphean task that because
0: (laughs) the (laughs) amount of work you put into each episode is it makes me that just sits down and talks (laughs) (laughs) seem completely pedestrian.
2: Context is really important. Um, I don't think the kind of show that we do to just look at the comics in their own little isolated uh, unit. I don't think really is the best way of doing it. You have to have an understanding of what's happening in the wider culture, what's happening at the same time. And yeah, sure, what else might have been on the newsstands at the time and, and might have been is a, the way to describe it for the eras we've been looking at because of the the distribution model. Um, it becomes a little more cleaner once we get to the direct market. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, that feels really important. Just have the worst of what's going on. So reading a a very old-fashioned, shall we say, um, comic that could have been produced in 1972 at the same time as Frank Miller's pushing the boundaries of what he can do artistically in Daredevil uh, as he gets ready to take over writing, is one example of that. Or watching the X-Men grow, watching John Byrne and Chris Claremont come together and push the X-Men so far in the direction that they took, but away from that original concept as well, whilst the Fantastic Four is kind of um, treading water a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it's important to understand what else is going on at the same time, and, and to then see those things spill over into the the stuff we're looking at.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the Fantastic Four as well were they? I mean, they were the start of the Marvel Universe as well, weren't they? And, and it felt as though they were the backbone of the Marvel Universe for quite a while because the Avengers comics were never, especially through the 60s, 70s, 80s, they were never really that centralised where they? they were almost kind of on the fringes and X-Men were were defined by being kind of the misfits on the fringe. And so you really only had the Fantastic Four that were like kind of front and centre, but you forget that there were a lot of years where they were just, as you say, like treading water in the middle there.
2: Yeah, and the number of, uh, you know, big names in comics who worked in it and never got to produce their best work you know the Jerry Conway run is a difficult read mm. there's some fantastic concepts in there but it doesn't read very well uh, John and Salva Shema do not produce their best artwork on there and you can uh, there are certain times where you can almost feel the contempt of, for superheroes coming out of Bersema's pencils so yeah it, it is interesting to look at all these big names that you associate with the changes at Marvel in the 70s and go mm, your stuff isn't working is it
0: yeah yeah and that, and that's the beauty of reading it in the in the kind of the context that you're reading it in as well, isn't it? Just being able to to go through those eras, and you know, eventually, if you go through a black spot, you come out on the other side, and you'll you know you'll be able to see the mm. the landscape of Marvel comics through it through that lens,
2: and, and to look at you know what is clearly someone's given this issue to Sal Schima to draw because he's he's quick, he's reliable, and then compare that to the stuff he really enjoys doing in uh, Rom Space Night, and yeah. go yeah we've got two sides of the same person here. You can tell where the passion is.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And again, again, if you read them in isolation, you potentially wouldn't see that pattern, would you?
2: That's it, yeah. Um,
0: And so, Meredith, you've got a a book coming out. Uh, It is Super Fun Sexy Times, um, which is um, a kind of look at superheroes uh, when they're not fighting crime. And it's a very kind of sex-positive book. Um, How did this project kind of come about for you?
1: Well... The concept basically came from whenever whenever I'm reading superhero stories or, like, people's discussions of, as to the quirks of superheroes or their character, I always love the side stories. Like, uh, I like knowing where their fa- favorite delis are. I like knowing what a trip to the grocery store looks like for them. Yeah. You know, uh, I really like the mundane or not just not just mundane, but just. Wanting to see these extraordinary people in more normal surroundings, and yeah, and yeah. so that translated into what do their relationships look like
0: yeah i mean it's a i mean it's a massive part isn't it and and what i what I love about that kind of story and that kind of approach to superheroes is not only does it illuminate a different side to these characters but it also makes the extraordinary more extraordinary by putting it in context, doesn't it? it kind of gives you gives you their life and shows you you know just how fantastic their actual lives are when you compared to you know the everyday life of you know going grocery shopping or falling in love or kind of you know having relationships and things yeah that's wonderful so a lot of the um you know the, the conversation that i've seen in interviews that you've had and a lot of the um the marketing for this book is that it's a um a very sex positive book it talks about um it's five short stories and it covers multiple aspects of relationships, um, issues regarding kind of sexuality and identity. How has the kind of the, the comics landscape changed towards this kind of attitude towards sex and erotica in, in, in fiction?
1: You know, I think, I think it comes in waves. Mm. Um, because I mean, if you look at some of, uh, I think right around the, I guess here we call it the British invasion when all the Vertigo books were coming.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like uh, I think people were definitely more open to these kinds of more adult stories. Uh, And then it sort of died down a little bit. So I, yeah, I think it comes in waves. I think with each new wave, we get a little more acceptance for a different group of people, Yeah. uh, which is great. There's a lot of normalizing, that is happening now that I'm really happy about for people who are just you know who are just little babies (laughs) you know there's a lot that you know that is being discussed that I would have liked to have known when I was younger
0: Yeah, yeah yeah and how does it feel bringing a book out that not just engages with that kind of side of the community but also you know, I, I do feel this kind of work pushes conversation forward. Um, how important was that for you when you were, when you were bringing the book out?
1: Um, I always felt like with this book, I wanted... I was more, uh, first, I was more nervous about this book than any other book that I've done before. Right, right. Um, because I felt like I was writing this for somebody. Other books I've done for myself, they're stories I wanted to tell. This one, I was like, I want this to be what somebody needed to read. Yeah, um, and now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> <laughs> Just I've lost my train of thought.
0: No, no, I think you, you're on the right tracks with it. I think you 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 have answered it. Just the idea of, um, you know, having a book that is, I mean, you you've you've touched on it really about it being important, it being something that um, pushes the conversation forward really regarding kind of sex and and positivity and and you know. Sexuality with regards to identity and, and, and issues like that really yeah and, and this, do you feel like this is the right time to be doing this in comics because I do feel as you say there is a there is a change in the air really with uh, with sex positive books like uh, like sex criminals and things like that that just kind of not as you say normalize the the conversations that are being had
1: yeah, I think a lot of stories are being given the opportunity to exist uh right now and i'm really excited about what what i'm seeing mm. in the works
0: yeah definitely i mean the the fact that i you know I, I i kind of asked you earlier do you read superhero comics it's kind of it's a it's a privilege and a luxury to, to be able to ask that question these days because you can read so many comics that are nothing to do with superheroes. You know, you can read every, anything and everything now. And I think it's, it's wonderful to have that community of, of diversity, not just in the, you know, the pool of talent that we've got there, but also in the, the actual types of comics that are coming out as well.
1: Yeah, it's such a one, it's a great medium because it's like, you can approach it from any skill level and do well if you have a compelling story. And it's very, it's very easy to produce and get out there. It, so it allows for a lot of interesting stories to take place.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. That might
1: have a harder time be, uh, getting, getting greenlit elsewhere.
0: Yeah. And so you've got five stories in the, um, in the volume. Uh, what, uh, what can you tell us about some of the stories that you've got in there?
1: All right, let's see. It's, it's been a long time since I've worked on it. <laughs> <laughs> very long time. Um, so the first comic is, uh, two sidekicks from opposing, you know, a superhero and a supervillain getting stuck in an enclosed area and them, uh, discussing sort of, uh, trading, trading stories back and forth about, uh, exploits that other sidekicks have gone through. Uh, then there is, uh, a story of two supervillains, Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them is sort of, going through the last phase of with supervillains, you know, you, you'd expect that they'd have like, it's a certain relationship barrier to like, go, this is who I really am. This is. Am.
0: <laughs> yeah. Welcome to my. <laughs> my lair. <laughs> and yeah.
1: then, so this, so uh this, in this story, uh, a character is going through the last hurdle of revealing their identity to their partner more fully. And, uh, I really like that story. That one's probably mm. my favorite. Um, there's one with a very stressed out assassin and his loving husband. Mm. And, it's a oh, stressful
0: that's... job, I imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a story where a couple is negotiating what they can and can't do. And in regards to one of them having superpowers, if that's going to cause any problems uh, in the bedroom.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Yes and gosh there's one more what is the last
0: one? I oh, could leave it uh, as a mystery yes <laughs> <laughs> we'll pretend that that's that's your plan all along to leave it as a mystery right <laughs> so steve i can't imagine you get much time
2: to read other comics other than fantastic four do you
0: manage to <laughs> do you manage to branch out from superhero stuff once in a while
2: yes i mean my pile of shame is, is pretty big <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I make a point. One of the downsides of not living in the UK anymore is my lack of access to the small press market that's there. I would be quite a regular convention goer, and now I basically get to Thought Bubble, uh, and that's it. So I have to do a once a year binge. Although, uh, short box, thank God, short for short box, because I can get this stuff mailed to me. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I, I do make a real point of when I go to Thought Bubble of not buying anything that I can get in a standard comic shop. I want to buy the stuff that's only available through the the people that create it, uh, yeah. and I want a physical copy as well. Um, digital comics are great, but if there's a physical copy available, I want to have that. I want to. I want my my short box, which has loads of independent comics in, of all different shapes and sizes, um, paper types and printing and uh, all these fantastic physical artifacts i think that was because one of my first things i ever got at the convention was uh becky clunan's short comic wolves where oh. it was one of the original ones where it had been uh, it wasn't a digital printing it was a physical printing where you could actually feel where the press had hit the paper and she made me run my thumb over it to really <laughs> and i was just like okay yeah no i, I get this yeah yeah that's wild that's crazy. Mm.
0: How did you start out, Meredith? Did you start out like um, you know printing your own zines and things like that, or did you did you go straight into into more printed works?
1: Gosh, it was so long ago now.
0: <laughs> I know. I just asked you what you did in your last book, and now yeah, I'm asking you to asked... go further back.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Everything past three months is a blur. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's all um, forgotten memories. Uh, the past is an illusion. Um, so I got started doing mini a couple mini comics. Uh, that I did print out, I did it because, you know, I was searching for a job and I was bored.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And those pro well, no, I, I had already made contact with Oni press through my school. They had a portfolio review before I graduated. And so I at least had the contact there uh, after I graduated. And um, so I was making my minis while I was waiting to hear back from, people like Oni Press and see if they were interested in hiring me. Yeah. And uh, I was really lucky. They they got me a book within a year, Jen uh, Van Meter's Hopeless Savages, Volume 4. Uh,
0: yes, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've pretty much been working ever since. This year has been a lot of pu- uh, pitching books instead.
0: Yeah, starting the next phase of work.
1: Exactly, yeah. That's awesome. And- yeah
0: the obviously the title of uh, of your of your latest is super fun sexy times and so fun is right there in the title um how you know how important was it for you to kind of get the right tone with these stories because you are hitting on some you know quite big issues when it comes to you know relationships and things but i imagine you also want to kind of keep the levity there as well
1: it was really important to me to have uh, a level of goofiness to it because mm. i want i want people to Oh gosh! how do I phrase this? Sometimes sex is awkward yeah, it's <laughs> weird and uh, i I didn't want to sh- uh, ignore that i want I want people who who read my book to feel reassured that any way that they're engaging with their partner, as long as they're communicating and they're not nobody's being awful to each other, however you're engaging is normal yeah yeah
0: yeah and i think humor does go a long way to to normalizing it doesn't it or at least making the conversation easier to have
1: yeah
0: and you don't want to be too serious you don't want to be like a textbook <laughs> like I, do's I, and don'ts. Yeah.
1: I want people to to feel happy after finishing this book
0: so yeah it, it, i mean it looks absolutely wonderful i mean it's um it. it you know five short stories as well so you're kind of you're coming at different things from different angles you're you're attacking like kind of the superheroes and supervillains and relationships and 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 it's something you know that everyone can relate to when they when they read these stories as well which is which is sometimes rare to say when it comes to superheroes about how relatable their lives can be right yeah and so that's super fun sexy times that is um out not out in august but coming in september is that right Yes, I believe so. And that's from I, I uh...
1: the apology email from my publisher, <laughs> <laughs> it's out of their hands. It wasn't their fault. So.
0: Sure, sure. Well, as I say, it just builds anticipation. People will listen to this and they'll be like, oh, no, I, I want it now. And then they'll have to kind of wait a little bit longer, but that's perfectly fine. Yep. And that's out from Oni's Limerence imprint. Is that right? Correct. And you've also got, is it um, the Sphinx and the Minotaur, which is a mini that's coming in September as well?
1: Yes, uh, that is a little mini, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's about a sphinx and a minotaur, and they're both trapped in the labyrinth, but they're both of them trapped by different barriers. Yeah. That
0: sounds cool. And that's, is that coming out, is that digital release, or is that something that's coming out physically?
1: That will be, I'm, so in September, I am kickstarting a printed version. Oh, awesome. And it, should be, it should be 16 pages. Fully oh, great. Printed. Yeah.
0: Brilliant, I'm looking forward to that um and steve you do the fantastic cast every week um with andy leyland that comes out um what, what day does that come out on
2: uh if i <laughs> it should come out at midnight <laughs> like between friday and saturday uh, but then websites get confused with gmt and bst and i'm not even in those time zones so <laughs> friday night ish <laughs> <laughs> gets confi- yeah, it gets confused with two
0: different time zones that has nothing to do with you.
2: But, but we're, we're weekly, um, we can be found at thefantasticast.com uh, or just put the name Fantasticast into any search engine. It's a very unique name. Yeah. <laughs> which is good for us.
0: And a, and a unique concept as well, which I don't know whether that says that, you know, you've cornered the market or if you're just the only ones crazy enough to do it. I don't know. but uh...
2: It's probably the latter. People looking go, going, oh, thank God they're doing it. We don't have to. <laughs> well, um,
0: let's move on then to both to talk about some comics that are important to you or comics that um, are significant and uh, you'd like to talk about. Um, now, Steve, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, what is the um, what's the comic that you've brought with you today?
2: Yeah, being asked to choose one comic out of everything I've ever read was a bit daunting. (laughs) And I think, okay, do do I go for uh, like the first comic I walked into a comic shop and picked up off the shelf? Or do I go for the first one I remember getting out of the library? And I just kept going back and then I realized I don't want to talk about like a a Western superhero comic. I want to talk about the first one that I ever owned, Mm. which is Book 25, Of the Asterix series Uh, Coincidentally, based on where I am uh, Asterix in Belgium (laughs) Um, This I have memories of As my first Asterix book that I owned And I I, I was very pleased um, That I still own it It survived many moves Um, So it's probably the oldest book that I own as well Um, But I was a huge fan When I was a kid, I was a huge fan of Asterix Asterix and Tintin were available Pretty much everywhere uh, when I was, you know, really getting into reading at the end of the eighties and then moving into the nineties, the Asterix books, especially because they were funny. You know, tinted books were were gripping, thrilling. They had humour in them, but Asterix books were funny. Mm. And it took me a long time to realise just how funny. Because when you're a kid, a lot of jokes you don't pick up on. I, I'm embarrassed as to how long it took me to understand that calling the Druid Get-a-fix was incredibly <laughs> appropriate. Because when you're eight, you have no idea what a fix is. <laughs> and then you don't challenge it because why would you? Yeah. It's just a name. Um, and I believe I've taken that into adulthood. It took me seven episodes to understand that calling the main character in our zombie live more was a joke. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> so, oh, I'm, I'm ashamed. Um, the Asterix in Belgium was, was what I remember as my first one, and, and it's I, I re- reread read it for the first time in at least fifteen years uh, in preparation for this and just enjoying the cartooning within it because Gosni and Udazo, um, Gosni was the writer and Udazo, the, the artist just create these really enjoyable visual, um, strips you know if there's a good story in it there are some fantastic jokes but the the pacing of it it took me about 10 pages before i I hit the first point where i was just laughing out loud inevitably that involved a roman being knocked about the place by uh, obelix Mm. because i I will never not find that funny (laughs) Um, (laughs) and yeah it like a lot of asterisk books there's lots of referencing to things half of them i don't get because this was published in 1979 so there's references to contemporary figures who not only were they contemporary well known within france but not necessarily within england but I, I hadn't even been born then so i i have no idea who the cyclist is who cameos as a uh, as a messenger for instance but mm. it, it's very clearly someone someone um, relatively yeah, famous that's it uh, and and you know, there's various things about European style comics, especially the Bond Destiny that I love. The lettering, um, the the speech bubbles, uh, the way they really become expressive, and especially when they the tails become really jagged. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I follow Nate Piekos on Twitter. He likes to say it's a direct uh line from the speech bubble to the mouth you don't do any of the messy round. i'm reading asterix and going no i love this i love the circuitous routes that these are uh, these speech balloons take to get to the mouths of people yeah um yeah there is some. Um, it, it's also quite poignant this one because the writer gossini passed away during production of this and about two-thirds of the way through the book the weather changes and it becomes rainy and overcast for the rest of the book, and it marks the point where he passed away and this was um this was Izo's way of of, inclu- of honoring his creative partner mm. so oh. I'm completely unaware of that at the time but it it adds a poignancy to it it doesn't detract from the hilarity of it because it these huge armies start facing each other towards the end of it, and it becomes farcical and, and Julius Caesar just it turns up, it completely frustrated by all the idiocy going on around him, which is the best way to have him.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, I'm I I'm fascinated by because you know what you said about the idea that um, I I was exactly the same. Asterix and uh, Tintin were all over the place when we were growing up. They were kind of the the books that you were given. They were like these huge, like they were bigger than A4, weren't they? Like they, or they still are bigger than A4, kind of albums. Yeah. Um, that are very—it's the very European style, isn't it—to to release uh, to release books like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, Meredith, were these books around when you were younger, or are they are they more of I, a, a European thing?
1: I was going to say I am a little disappointed. Uh, there is a glaring uh, lack of European comic books uh, when I was growing up. Uh, mm-hmm. You knew of Tintin because at least the television show was airing on one of our cartoon channels
0: Mm -hmm. right yeah
1: so we were aware of 1010 and i think everyone would have seen asterix and obelisk just as recurring imagery that just popped up all the time without knowing that it was a comic as well yeah Mm -hmm. it wasn't until i was in college that i was really uh fully introduced to either of them and just how gorgeous a book they are uh, as an artist they're just stunning to look at the cartooning's great uh the action the flow the pacing yeah Mm.
0: yeah yeah you said it exactly right the the cartooning is superb in some of these aren't they really like the with Tintin, it's you know it's action, it's gri- it's kind of this gripping adventure that you know there's like a tension and uh, a pacing that is uh, that is really you know kind of masterful. And with Asterix, it's exactly what you said, Steve. It's funny. You know, it's really, it's very hard to get kind of visual slapstick and visual and comedy timing in 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 comedy in art in in comics. Um, but Asterix like nails
2: it really well, doesn't it? Mm. And the other thing that really works with the Asterix books is, is the translation. And I didn't realise the was were translated when I was younger. And then as I was older, I became introduced to Anthea Bell, who was the translator for the Asterix books right up until uh, a couple of years ago when she became ill. And then she very sadly passed away about nine months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that she took these very idiosyncratic, very French jokes and made them work seamlessly for the british audience um her, her obituary on the Guardian is well worth reading because it talks through just how she handled one joke that was impenetrable if you weren't french because right. it, re- it relied on very specific wordplay very specific cultural context and she just she found a way to make it work in in english which is just yeah uh, but she really is the unsung hero of the the asterix albums um translation is an art uh that that isn't often recognized outside of the industry Uh, and yeah she just did such a fantastic job on this Mm -hmm. I I feel like I should say uh, one of the things you unfortunately get with a lot of European comics especially older ones is that they don't handle their uh, depictions of non-European races very well so in the Asterix books there is a recurring group of characters they're a pirate Ship who always get their ship destroyed and Mm -hmm. one of them is a a black pirate who is depicted in a very stereotypical way with the the big red lips Mm -hmm. Um, it's a visual thing and there is the kind of defence, although it's not really, that they are parodying and pastiching many different races and cultures Um, nobody's immune to it, it's kind of the LOLO effect, but it, it then ignores the fact that some pastiches and parodies are more harmful than others yeah. And you see this a lot more in, in the early Tintin stuff, which is just indefensibly racist. Yeah. And But Hergé came to understand this as he progressed through life and really worked hard to counter his earlier work and the harm that he'd done with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thankfully, like I said, I was introduced to both co- uh, comics while I was in college. So we were able to be honest in, you know, what missteps the comics had also taken and uh as you said how the some of the depictions were harmful
0: yeah i think it's important as well to you know I, I can i can almost see the case of really of just like well let's just kind of take those parts out but i also think it's important to you know to see how far we've come and to to not kind of uh to erase history in that sense you know these were this is this is how that this is how different races were depicted in those days and it's not pretty it's not you know the, it happened everywhere didn't it It happened in like mickey mouse cartoons
2: it happened mm-hmm. in like yeah. the old
0: uncle scrooge comics and as you say like Tintin and things like that but um I'd...
2: I think I, I'm just old enough to have read Noddy books, which had the, the racist doll known as a gollywog in it. Mm, and yeah. to, have, but also been old enough when they changed that and replaced them with gremlins to have experienced some of the backlash from people. Well, this is our childhood. You can't touch this. I can't be racist. They're on jam jars. Mm. It's like, mm, it's quite possible that jam jars are racist too. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. I think Warner who, uh, I think it was Warner brothers dealt with this probably the most um sensitively where they were basically like we know this is a racist history uh it reflects views that were even at the time incorrect but were common but we're not going to remove it because removing it would represent that it would potentially lead to the misperception that they these things never these incorrect perceptions never existed at all
0: Mm. yeah yeah and you and you don't learn lessons from it then do you really yeah but um but i mean apart from that these you know these asterix books are you know they're still wonderful they're still funny today aren't they you know the the slapstick humor is it doesn't get old the you know as you say some of the actual references might be a little you know go over our heads a little bit now as modern audiences um but i think that's that's why as a, you know, as a kid when I was reading these, um, I mean, I don't remember ever buying them. I don't remember ever them being bought for me. They just seemed to just be there, you know, just always seem <laughs> to have Asterix asterisk books and, and Tintin books.
2: Yeah. yeah. And for me, these were legitimate because I had a very um, severe grandmother, but she had French editions of Asterix, uh, which then made this absolutely fine for me to read. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I... A, a gift a few years ago with French some more modern French editions and I've completely failed to learn French to attempt to read them mm. but yeah they were legitimate in a way that the Beano wasn't when I was a kid or if I got my hands on some X-Men or Spider-Man that wasn't legitimate but because these were um my grandmother had the books these were okay yeah yeah
0: how do you think they um mm. Do you think they played a part in the kind of comics fan that you are today? Do you think they, they shaped how you are as a comics fan? I,
2: undoubtedly. Mm. Uh, even though we, up until a few, a few days ago, I hadn't read Asterix in decades. There are certain things that still stick with me. You know, falling into the cauldron of Magic Potion as a baby. Um, the, the wonderful joke name. So the, the, the fishmonger with his rotten fish is called Unhygienic's. The blacksmith is fully automatics. Uh, yeah. Just, you, I, I adore a pun. The more tortured, the better. And, <laughs> and the puns in these are genuinely beautiful. And that really comes down to, to Anthea Bell and her skill in making jokes work. Um, I love cartooning. I distinctly remember reading some Superman origin series from the 90s where, inexplicably two guards in Cadmus were drawn as Asterix Nobilix minus the (laughs) moustaches. I I cannot, to this day, I do not understand why it was done, but I was full of glee at the reference. And one reference in this that I loved was, because it's Asterix in Belgium, there are two panels where Thompson and Thompson turn up from the tinted books, but as as Roman legionaries with their malapropisms. And uh, Uduso even mimics Erge's art style for that. Just for two uh, panels, and it's such a lovely tip of the hat.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, it's brilliant uh, And as you say, like they they formed a bit of a backdrop of of kind of childhood comics reading for for you know for in in Britain at that time, to the point where I don't even. I don't even think of them when I think about, you know, when I was reading comics, you know, because I I started reading like Marvel comics and superhero comics and and things that I I nowadays consider as, you know, comics comics that I that I read I started reading them like early teens, but you know, when I go back further and think of, you know, the Beano and the Dandy and think about uh Tintin and Asterix and and things like that I was reading comics all my life basically. So it's 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 crazy that they they have got this longevity as well, that there are still fans for Asterix and Tintin, and they are, you know, rightly considered these, you know, these kind of foundational aspects of of European comics.
1: Yeah, I think uh, when you say what you're describing, I think the American equivalent would probably have been Archie and Betty Veronica comics.
0: Right, where yeah.
1: You just mm-hmm. see them Where that you, do, you don't even consider them a comic. They're their own entertainment entity
0: yeah 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 that's exactly right it's it. they just become part of the background don't they and just part of you know your reading experience growing up yeah it's just yeah. it's
1: just what's at the grocery store every week when you're checking out
0: yeah yeah that's exactly it yeah the, yeah the magazine that you get bought you know while your parents get like the tv guide or something like that they just get you something
2: as well Yeah, and i, I was a huge user of my local library and you could guarantee at any given point, you have about two thirds of the, the then current Asterix volumes available to read there at any moment. You know, obviously, somewhere out on loan. So that yeah, it has that yeah. certain ubiquitousness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I might have made that word up. <laughs> I think it fits. It works.
1: <laughs> okay? The point is, we understood.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's all you ever need. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate you bringing it as well because it gave me an excuse to, to read Asterix again, um,
2: which I haven't done in years, which, yeah. uh, which was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. I'm not stopping. I'm going through all the rest of my volumes in the next week or so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll go back to through. So I'm sure I've got some old ones in some, uh, some old boxes here as well. Yeah. I'll have to dig them out. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so let's uh, move on to your choice then, Meredith. Uh, what did you bring with you?
1: I brought From Far Away. Uh, it's a manga by Kyoko Hikawa and what i love about this book is it takes a lot of story tropes that you that i grew up with seeing a lot in manga but it may, it it makes small tweaks to how these elements are delivered and makes it novel again it's basically uh a young japanese girl uh finds herself spirited away to another world um uh, where she's supposed to herald this really bad, catastrophic event. What I really like about it, well, there's a lot of stuff I like about it. <laughs> One of the things I really like about it is they actually make the being transported to a different world uh, more believable. Like, she, she doesn't get there and immediately know the language. Mm. She, she has to relearn the language, uh, she has to learn a new language, Uh, It causes a lot of issues with communication. The world that she's fallen into has sort of, I would say, Roman-era technology levels. And you actually feel like she's actually immersing in it, like she's actually getting around to it. She wears the clothes. A lot of the times in in mangas that have similar stories, the main character is always defined. They never change out of their modern clothes. Uh, You don't get any sense that they figure out how, how machinery works in and yeah. where they are it's like they're still very detached from the world they're not making an effort to integrate yeah which you do see with this story and then what i also love is the cast of characters a- again what you see in a lot of other manga along these lines the cast is usually very young very beautiful people right <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> And, and part of the story is, who will she go uh, fall in love with? Right. Um, with this one, you get a much, uh, the cast of characters uh, and allies, it's a much more diverse range of ages. And also, they're not all beautiful people. And I remember when I first read it, I got thrown off because a character that, had I read it and read them in any other book, would have been a main character, uh, been a, a main villain or a minor villain and remained a minor villain. And in this book, they do actually, what's the word? The saying, they, they turn over a new leaf.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: And like I say, it's very novel because other books weren't doing that. They weren't taking advantage of these, these stereotypes and assumptions to show that, no, you know, anybody can be a good guy or an ally. If, if given the right set of circumstances, they can choose to do that. And then lastly, what I really like about it is the overall theme of the book is that small, cons- consistent action can build up into a greater good. Yeah. And it's so expertly depicted at every level of the book, from very minor events and interactions to the, the big climax,
0: i I managed to get hold of the first two volumes of this because there's is there fourteen volumes something like that in in total I
1: think so. yeah
0: yeah yeah I was looking it up online there's there's around that many um but what i i loved these first i'm gonna seek out as you know the the rest of them as well because I loved the energy of the series right from the start there is there's such kind of an adventurous spirit to it you know there is there is as you say like it does have the familiar tropes of you know the the reluctant hero is starting on an epic journey you know she's you know she's thrown into this foreign situation uh you know quite literally because she can't speak their language and she's you know she kind of um owes her way through all these different situations and scenarios she's she comes across this you know this handsome um handsome stranger that uh you know rescues her and, and whisks her away um and it's just so um so energetic and so um so fun as it as it whisks you off on the adventure mm-hmm. um
1: there are a couple if I have any issues with it <laughs> <laughs> right. one of them is just that uh the translation uh is reflective of the time at which right. the book is published
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and
1: so. So you get a lot of slang in there that was popular at the time, but now is very dated
0: yeah there are some yeah there are some aspects to it where I'm very aware that this is a translated work you know which is which again as you say is is a symptom of of kind of manga released around that time yeah but it's um it's what they what they call shojo manga, isn't it? So it's um, yeah. it's manga that's predominantly the target demographic is teenage uh, female audience. Yeah. Um, is that a genre that you're? Well, is it, is that like a, a type of manga that you've you've read a lot of? It, how does this kind yeah. Of compare?
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was the my introduction to comics was through manga and shojo manga, and yeah, I've read a lot of books and that that played along the similar lines and i've enjoyed those too but i just felt like it hit me at the right time i guess where it was like they were using so many assumptions and tropes that were you see in the other books uh, to to sort of sort of wrong-foot you like it wasn't totally where you expected it overall it's the the story goes in the direction you expected to but like I said, the details
0: the, throw you a bit. Yeah. So I mean, it it plays off the expectations you have from uh, that type of manga, doesn't it? Really, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I I, always, I imagine as well that the more kind of shoujo manga you read, the more you will find the you know the small things to love about uh, from far away.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's it's a book that I have. Pulled off the shelf and reread many times over. Yeah, and, uh, I continue to enjoy it each time.
0: Yeah. yeah, And so you said you got into comics through reading manga.
1: Yes, uh, I started with Sailor Moon, like a lot of my uh, peers. Yeah, and um, I worked at a comic book shop for a little while, and they we had an agreement that you know I would help them stock books, and in return I would get to read as much manga as I wanted. <laughs> um, I read less of it now. I think it's it's not uncommon when you work in comics that you stop reading comics or you just keep acquiring like the critically acclaimed comics and just never reading them. So your your to read pile just gets insane.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I always try to learn just enough to carry a conversation mm-hmm. about when I'm at conventions.
0: But well, when it comes to kind of books that you 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 know you should have read but you haven't got around to reading
1: uh, yeah, exactly. So it's like if it's the big, popular one, I will sort of I will have enough information.
0: <laughs> yeah, just to kind of nod along and go, yes, I totally agree with that or you know or no i I, I think that's I, yeah. I think that's definitely it yeah.
1: I know who that character is. I know the big spoiler that just happened. Uh, <laughs> you know I know that this character died, or.
0: Yeah. Was vibed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you just go into a superhero conversation by going, oh, and that big death or that big resurrection, you know, ninety percent of the time you'll you'll already have covered yeah. what's happening in superhero comics. Yeah, exactly. And um, Steve, have you read much? Uh, do you read much manga?
2: Mangas are probably my biggest blind spot when it comes mm-hmm. to kind of uh, graphic storytelling. Yeah. Um, and actually, I was trying to think through. Why is it that? And I realized pretty much everything that was coming to my mind is what other people would say when they walk into a comic shop. Oh, I don't know where to begin. There's too much of it. Uh, what, what's the really famous? Uh, you know, All these things. I'm just realizing none of this is an excuse. Mm. What I need to do is go and read some of it. Unfortunately, uh, I did go looking for the first volume of this in my comic shop because it's the only place I can get English language. Um, stuff in in Ghent which is where I live they didn't have it and couldn't get it in time and uh, we don't have Amazon in Belgium in the same way that I used to have in the UK so I was a bit stuck on that when I really wanted to have it because I wanted the reading experience of moving a different way through the book as well rather than I just it's digital and I'm tapping my iPad in the same way that I, I do for anything else so
1: Yeah, that's why when I picked the book, I was initially like, is this going to be okay? Because I know it came out when I was in high school, which was ages and ages ago. So (laughs) its availability has probably diminished.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is difficult and that is a consequence of of manga as well is you know a lot of it loses you know goes out of print or um you know the rights change to different publishers to to produce the the kind of the western translations yeah, um very I,
1: disposable by yeah sure yeah
0: Yeah, I mean, on the last episode, I was talking to Lucy Sullivan about her choice, which was uh, Domu, which was, yeah, yeah, from from Katsuhiro Otomo, who is, you know, being the creator of Akira, you would imagine that his work would be readily available. But the fact that he even his work isn't, you know, you can't you can't get some of his earlier works um in in you know in in western yeah in the western world anyway um and um and yeah so you know being able to find but you know to put your finger on on a certain type of manga or any or any specific manga is is notoriously difficult so so yeah that is that is unfortunately you know a, a consequence of of you know of, of having to have it translated and having to, to go through people different companies like that so yeah i don't um i don't i understand steve where you're coming from when it comes to you know trying to find these books but um but they're worth seeking out a lot of these definitely and um and and from far away is definitely one that's worth seeking out because it's really i found it really funny as well like the first yeah. couple of volumes that i read as well like it had as you say it does take this Kind of, uh, you know, regular, unassuming girl, and just throws her into the middle of this, you know, thing where she is. Uh, there's a prophecy surrounding her, and she's just kind of bumbling her way through. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very good. It's very fun.
1: Yeah, and then I think also a- another thing that I really liked about the book is that the relationships she forms with people, it happens at a pace that's more believable. Right. It- Yeah, she doesn't immediately, well, (sighs) she does immediately trust one character. Right, uh, yeah. Second main character, but how their relationship progresses from there is much more believable than uh, other shoujo manga. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it goes back to what you were saying before as well about the you know about what you're what you're doing with um with your own work as well the idea of of taking these fantastical elements but also introducing the reality to them and introducing the the everyday aspects and yeah. and and there's a lot of that in from far away isn't there as well like a lot of the humor is derived from the fact that she is you know a, a normal girl for want of a better word she you know she's just come from the the real world or the human world into this kind of fantastical realm um and a lot of the humor is in there but as the as the stories progress, a lot of the the heart and the you know the emotional beats come from the the smaller moments, don't they, like the actual human moments, yeah. Yeah, I think it's. Um... I'm sorry, I
1: have nothing more to add to that. No, no,
0: <laughs> no. Good. Well, yeah, that means that means I'm doing something right. I'm saying the right things at least. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's um, it's a, it's again, it's a great piece. It's a great work. Um, and um, and yeah, I love that. Um, I love yeah, that kind I, of human aspect to it.
1: I do believe because I looked it up once because I'm like, this was so great, I have to find other books from, uh, this author, and. I do believe that from far away one uh, and sort of like the Japanese equivalent of like a Hugo prize or something for sci-fi and fantasy, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, maddeningly there, I could only find one other uh, series that they did and it never got translated. And so it's like, oh
0: no. (laughs) So painful, isn't it? Yeah.
1: It is.
0: And especially like award-winning authors or award-winning creators as well, no, to yeah. not be able to find their work is is maddening yeah yeah the the other thing about manga as well which again you know it is a, a, a gift and a curse from what you were saying steve about knowing where to start and having you know such a large volume to kind of dive into mm-hmm. is that there are different there are so many different types for the type of you know personality i mean they're they've had a demographic a large demographic of or a large kind of swath of manga you know shoujo manga which is specifically designed for a female audience which is not really something we can you know we can say in you know in america and in, in england this idea of of being able to of catering comic books for specifically for girls or specifically for girls or women you know to be able to to have that which is we're only just really embracing this kind of all ages market yeah. as well really aren't we i mean you said meredith you've written for you know for every all different age groups
1: mm-hmm. What comes in the future should be very interesting because uh, something that I am seeing repeatedly from professors and, and people who t- uh, teach graphic novels and illustration is that their classrooms are becoming more and more predominantly female.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just looking and seeing it, you know, it ran for 10 years as a sequential narrative and I can't think of a single title produced by what we'd call the mainstream western comics industry that has produced an ongoing 10 year long narrative mm. rather than a mini series or a, a prestige project or, or a discrete you know graphic novel but this idea of an ongoing thing predominantly aimed at, at, at a, a non-male audience that's not something western comics caters for no.
1: it might be changing also because i know uh, one of the major publishers for uh, western uh audiences uh, and translating manga is biz Mm -hmm. and I believe they announced earlier this year that they are going to start doing they're going to start publishing original content uh, not just licensing Japanese work Uh, so and so they are a company that is more in tune to publishing epics and multi-volume stories so that might shift the industry a little bit
0: yeah, well, that's wonderful to hear. It's great because there's the market is there, isn't it? You know, as as yeah. you said, Steve, like the you know this this is a series that was you know designed for a female audience and ran for ten years. You know, so the market was there for it. Um, and as you saying, Meredith, the next the next generation of of creators and and artists and writers, there you know there are a large female audience for that as well. Yeah, brilliant. Well, uh, I've taken up enough of your time, both of you. Thank you so much for um, for bringing those books with you. Thank you, um, thank you for joining me on the show uh, to talk about everything you do as well. That
2: was lovely. Uh, thank you for having <laughs> us and giving me a, an opportunity to go and reread something that I've not touched in a very long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, thank you both for giving me things to read. You know, I'd love to, you know, I'm loving to go back over Asterix and reread through those and, uh, and being able to pick up from far away as well and have, have something, a new series to dive into is always exciting. But, um, yeah, so uh, Steve Fantasticast is out every week um, on uh, Fridays and Saturdays, Fridays and or Saturdays, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> depending on where you are in the, in the world. <laughs> and um, Super Fun Sexy Times is coming out from ONI uh, this September as well um, to look out for that. Perfect. Thank you both for joining me, um, and uh, it was great speaking
2: to you both. Thank Thank you. you.
0: That's the Issue is part of the Multiversity Comics Podcast Network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter, at That's the Issue, and I'm on there too, at Matt Finally, you can contact the show via email at that's podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.